Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. I'm Pat Steele, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Deanna Snyder. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. And then we'll wrap up the broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Another beautiful day ahead here in Iowa, expecting a high of 66 degrees and a low of 44. It'll be breezy today, lots of sunshine, winds will be out of the south at uh, 10 to 20 miles an hour, mostly clear skies tonight. Tomorrow, again, a very nice day, high of 66, mild with plenty of sunshine. Our normal high for this time of year is 49 degrees, so we're well above that. Record high was set back in 1999, 81 degrees. Normal low is um, 31 degrees, and we'll be around that uh, most of the rest of the week here, a little above uh, freezing for overnight lows. Sunrise today at 7.02 a.m. and sunset tonight at 4.56. From the front page of the Des Moines Register, we have an article from Lee Rood about why dark money in the mayor race stirs anger. And the Republican National Committee has backed off on its uh, family leader uh, complaint regarding Republican candidates appearing there. From the Metro and Iowa section, stuck in second place, DeSantis decries polling. And uh, Nikki Haley plans to launch a $10 million ad campaign in hoping to overtake DeSantis in the GOP primary. So let's look at our weather and our headlines. And now here is Deanna with our first story. Politics, politics. It is that time of year, isn't it? All right, this is Lee Rood's article, Why Dark Money in Mayor Race Stirs Anger. Josh Mandelbaum says it was fellow Des Moines City Council member Connie Boson who first nudged him over a year ago to lunch with Republican power broker Doug Gross. Mandelbaum had just tried and failed to float a resolution at the City Council to try and safeguard abortion access for city residents, and he said he knew he and Gross were miles apart on key issues. But Boson told him that Gross was hunting for a candidate to challenge Mayor Frank County. Mandelbaum recalls Gross telling him that day at Tupelo Honey downtown that he was too liberal to win his support for the mayor's race. Back then, County had not yet announced his retirement, and Boson had yet to decide that she, too, wanted, to job, wanted the job. On November 7th, Boson bested Mandelbaum in the squeaky tight race, and Mandelbaum, knowing how far Gross would go to defeat him, regrets even trying to break bread. Mandelbaum said he knew Gross had thrown a lucrative fundraiser for Boson at his farm, Brownwick, and yeah, at his firm, I'm sorry, at his firm, Brownwick, and was a major donor to her campaign. But in late October, Gross and two others went a step further forming a nonprofit, Citizens for Des Moines, that paid to blanket Des Moines voters with flyers aimed at tainting Mandelbaum's record in the final days before the election. 
Mandelbaum said of the Flyers. It was a dirty tactic. What they put out there was untrue, false, and deceptive, with no time for me to effectively respond. Gross did not return Watchdog's phone calls seeking comment. The Flyers triggered Bleeding Heartland's Laura Bellin and the Des Moines Register's opinion editor to fire off 11th-hour pieces just before the election, decrying the tactics. On social media, com commenters called scurrilous the Flyers' claims that Mandelbaum might try to ban gas stoves or gas-powered cars. Some on Reddit tried to figure out why citizens for Des Moines didn't have to file any disclosure forms and questioned whether Bozen was a closet Republican. Bozen, who won by 48.2% to Mandelbaum's 45.8%, told Watchdog she didn't need citizens for Des Moines support, didn't like its tactics, and didn't endorse it. She said her campaign polled voters in October, and the results, which it never shared with Gross, showed her in the lead. The Flyers served me no purpose, she said. If anything, they probably hurt me more than helped me. On paper, at least, the mayor's job and those of the elected city council members are supposed to be nonpartisan. But big donations flowed this year to both candidates in the mayor's race, where Mandelbaum uh, appeared the more liberal candidate, supporting city action to protection of abortion rights, while Boson called for keeping the focus on local issues. On the afternoon after the election, disdain over what some voters saw as chicanery in the mayor's race was still heavy on their minds. When Gross and Tom Henderson, former chairman of Polk County's Democratic Party, faced a full house for an Osher Lifelong Learning Institute question-and-answer discussion at the Harkin Institute in Des Moines, Mary Ritchie, a supporter of Mandelbaum, said people pressed Gross to answer questions about the flyers and his tactics. Gross, she said, told the crowd he did what he did because Mandelbaum was winning. I almost fell out of my chair, she said. Gross said the tactics were allowed as long as the U.S. Supreme Court's 2010 decision stands in Citizens United versus FEC. That much-debated 5-4 to four decision held that the First Amendment's free speech clause prohibits the government from restricting independent campaign spending by corporations, including nonprofits, labor unions, and other associations. The last bill by Iowa lawmakers calling for a constitutional convention to address the Citizens United decision failed in 2017. Citizens of Des Moines, yeah, citizens of Des Moines flyers said Mandelbaum, who works and lobbies for the Environmental Law and Policy Center, quote, promotes policies that raise your utility bill and only looked out for his clients. In the flyers, the group references a draft resolution from Mandelbaum in October of 2020, approved by Boson and other council members, that supported achieving 100% 24-7 electricity from carbon-free sources by 2030. Gross, a well-known lawyer from Brown Winnick and a former lobbyist, was a former chief of staff in Governor Terry Branstad and ran unsuccessfully for governor in 2002. We know from filings at the Iowa's Secretary of State's office that one of the people who helped Gross form the Citizens for Des Moines is Mark Roth, another attorney at the Brown-Winnick firm. Another man listed as an incorporator was Alejandro Verdon, 
who only had a post office box listed for an address on the nonprofit incorporation papers. Burden could not be reached Friday or Monday for comment, and Boson said she'd never heard of him. But the man she hired to take over her campaign in September, Sam Roker, confirmed in a phone call Monday that he had worked with Verdon, who earlier this year was the campaign manager for the liberal Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz. Protasiewicz was elected this spring in the most expensive Supreme Court race in U.S. history. Roker was her campaign spokesperson, according to a recent article in Politico, Another top aide for the justice was Ben Knuckles, whose Democratic media consulting business also worked for Boson's campaign, according to campaign finance documents. Verdon, reached briefly Monday afternoon, said that no one had hired him in Iowa and that he could call back later in the day, but he had not, had not done that by press time. Boris didn't get to know about those connections before the election. Boris also didn't know that Brown Winnick Gross and Roth's Roth law firm also had penned court briefs defending the same 24-7 renewable energy standard on behalf of Google, a major client, that Citizens for Des Moines attacked Mandelbaum for supporting in the flyers. The firm argued in an Iowa Utility Board case involving mid-American energy that the standard would save customers money, while the citizens of Des Moines flyers claimed it would cost them more. Here's the rub. In the post-Citizens United world in which we live, voters don't get to know anyone anymore, everyone behind attempts to manipulate elections or how much they're spending to change the course of a campaign. Try as some have, efforts aimed at bringing more oversight and more transparency to dark money spending and political advocacy by the right and left have thus far failed in Iowa. Iowa Code 68A requires organizations and individuals who spend in excess of $1,000 in order to expressly advocate the election of defeat, the election or defeat of a candidate or a ballot issue, to file a statement within 48 hours of the independent expenditure and disclose their donors. But informing Citizens for Des Moines as a nonprofit and not as a campaign subject to political spending regulations, Gross and his partners bypassed the disclosure law. Zach Goodrich, executive director and legal counsel for the Iowa Ethics and Campaign Disclosure Board, said the mayor's race in Des Moines was just one example among many leading up to local elections about which people complained. The Cedar Rapids Community School District, Goodrich said, used public resources to publicize a bond referendum for their facilities. People complained the district improperly used its resources for political purposes. But because the district's actions weren't express advocacy or telling people how to vote, it was permissible under Iowa law, said Goodrich. We had similar complaints of other public entities persuasively promoting, but not expressively, not expressly advocating in bond referendums, she said. I understand and sympathize with those who want the law changed to have more transparency from those who spend money to influence elections. That being said, I don't know where the line to require reporting to our office would be drawn for persuasive-slash-influential materials, particularly when it comes to crafting a law that would be upheld in the courts. Goodrich said a bigger problem right now is that his agency also lacks power to enforce existing law. He said, even if a new law were passed, someone would violate it with no real consequence, 
Iowa law has no deadline to pay the civil penalties our board issues and no consequence for not paying those penalties. Goodrich said many of the laws governing the agency haven't been updated since 1993 relating to basic things such as adjusting dollar amounts for penalties or reflecting that his office has switched from paper to electronic filing. He said, we tried this past legislative session, but the bill had other changes tacked on that were unpopular and ultimately doomed it. He went on, ultimately, I'd say that changing the law to lower the bar for reporting to our agency should only come after we make other necessary and common sense updates that would let us better serve Iowa. Goodrich said his board is voting Thursday to finalize its 2024 legislative proposals. <coughs> Excuse me. And he expects the same bill to come up again. He said, we'll also be discussing the express advocacy issue since it's been a hot-button issue lately, he said. But any changes there are unlikely, unlikely to withstand court decisions because of free speech protections, he warned. According to an analysis by the Center for Responsive Politics, which maintains the OpenSecrets.org website, which is a 501c4 social welfare organizations, are the most frequently used entities to transfer dark money. That money can move from nonprofit to nonprofit and has a profound effect now on local elections. For years, a mix of national advocacy organizations like Common Cause have tried to push the U.S. Internal Revenue Service to block nonprofit political committees that hide the identity of their donors. The groups say hundreds of millions of dollars are being funneled through the 501c4 social welfare groups by partisan operatives. Social welfare activities, according to the IRS, aren't supposed to include direct or indirect participation or intervention in political campaigns. In 2018, the Federal Election Commission issued guidance to nonprofits in response to a D.C. District Court judge's ruling requiring nonprofit groups to disclose donors who give more than $200 for political purposes. However, the mandate applied only to groups making independent expenditures of more than $250, and many groups found ways to avoid the disclosure. Some advocacy organizations, like the Brennan Center for Justice, believe publicly funded elections would help counter the influence of the extremely wealthy by empowering small donors. As of 2018, 24 municipalities and 14 states had enacted some form of public financing, and at least 124 winning congressional candidates voiced support for public financing during the 2018 midterm election cycle. Many are pushing for more transparency in election spending on the national, state, and local level. The Disclose Act, introduced several times in Congress, aimed to strengthen disclosure and disclaimer requirements, enabling voters to know who is trying to influence their votes. That act was incorporated in 2019 into the broader For the People Act, H.R. 1, which passed the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives but did not advance in the Republican-controlled Senate. Some also wanted Congress to prevent super PACs and other outside groups from coordinating directly with campaigns and political parties and push the FEC to finally update campaign finance safeguards. Boson and Mandelbaum said they both support campaign finance reform, and polls suggest most Americans want to limit campaign spending. 
But polls also show few Americans know much about campaign finance. If you're still irked, <laughs> the best place to start is getting educated. <laughs> Pat. Thank you, Deanna. Also from the front page of the Morning Register, it's not an article, but uh, some pictures. Uh, it says, Dogtown Lights, Brighton Drake Neighborhood. The Drake Neighborhood is already feeling the holiday spirit as this season's Dogtown Lights kicked off over the weekend. The neighborhood-wide display features nearly 50,000 lights twinkling around the Dogtown Business and Entertainment District and will run through mid-March. As uh, a picture of Reverend Raven and his band, they're playing the blues at Lefty's Live Music in the Drake neighborhood. And another picture features uh, Brittany Applegate of Wells Fargo helping light the Dogtown lights in the Drake neighborhood in Des Moines. And that was on last Saturday. We'll continue with the uh, Des Moines mayor race, mayoral race. Uh, Keita Bolson's win was the big margins on the east side of Des Moines. And Tim Weber of the Register wrote this article. For the first time in two decades, Des Moines will have a new mayor, and for the first time ever, it will be a woman. Connie Bolson, who narrowly defeated her city council colleague, Josh Mandelbaum, according to unofficial results. Those results showed a gap of fewer than 1,000 votes between the two candidates. Neither earned a majority of the votes, with two other candidates, Denver Foote and Chris W. Van Arks, also receiving several hundred votes. Four years ago, no candidate attaining a majority would have meant a runoff between the top two finishers. That changed in 2020 following several high-profile runoffs in the city's 2019 election. So this year, Bolson's victory merely awaits the formality of confirmation by county auditors before it's official. And here's a closer look at how she won. Mandelbaum's deepest pockets of support were generally in the downtown part of Des Moines, while Bolson's came farther outside the city center. Most precincts in Des Moines had fewer than 500 votes cast in the mayoral election, and most of those precincts swung Bolson's way. That includes nearly every precinct in Wards 2, which is the northeast side, <clears throat> excuse me, and 4, Precinct 4, which is the southeast side, so the eastern half of the city. Meanwhile, of the eight Des Moines precincts where more than 800 votes were cast, four went to Mandelbaum and four went to Bolson, including three of the four largest precincts in Ward 3, which is downtown and southwest, which Mandelbaum represents. The city's four wards provide a more simplified look at how Bolson won the election. Both of the top two candidates won two wards apiece. Mandelbaum won wards 1 and 3, which are roughly west of the Des Moines River, and southwest 9th Street. Bolson won wards 2 and 4, roughly east of those same landmarks. More votes were cast in the wards that Mandelbaum won, nearly twice as many in fact. He did best in ward 1, winning 50.6% of the vote, 7 percentage points ahead of Bolson. But Bolson's margins of victory in the other wards were significantly larger. She won Ward 2 by 18 percentage points, 55.2% to Mandelbaum's 36.7%, and Ward 4 by nearly 17 percentage points, 54.1% to his 37.3%. Perhaps most notably, despite winning Ward 3, which he currently represents, Mandelbaum at 49.4% did not receive a majority of the votes there. Bolson received 45.6% of the unofficial vote count in Ward 3, and 5% went to other candidates, 
keeping the gap between the two leaders narrow enough to overcome in the other parts of the city. Did those other candidates prevent Mandelbaum from winning? That's difficult to say. There's no way to say whether enough of their supporters would have shifted to Mandelbaum or voted at all had those candidates not run. A runoff would have allowed this exercise to play out, but those are things of the past in Des Moines. We can, however, look at the 2019 mayoral race as a loose example of how much things can change between a general election and a runoff. The answer, in that case, not much. Incumbent Mayor Frank County squeaked ahead of state legislator Jack Hatch by fewer than 200 votes in the 2019 general election. Two other candidates siphoned away more than 10% of the vote, more than twice the impact of this year's distant runners-up. When a month later, County and Hatch faced head-to-head without the other candidates, the result was almost exactly the same, a county win, this time by fewer than 300 votes. Of course, the 2019 and 2023 races aren't complete parallels. The two other candidates in the 2019 election leaned more conservative than County and Hatch, while this year's election included a more progressive candidate in foot, alongside Bolzen and Mandelbaum. Regardless, Bolzen will be the city's new mayor, and Mandelbaum will still have a voice in, in municipal matters as he remains in his seat representing Ward 3 on the City Council. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. The RNC relents on Family Leader Forum for candidates. This is from Philip Sitter of the Des Moines Register. The Republican National Committee has backed off its threat to sanction presidential candidates who attend the Thanksgiving Forum hosted by the Family Leader in Des Moines on Friday. CEO Bob Vanderplantz said... The RNC and I have agreed on the format of the Family Leader, November 17th Thanksgiving Family Forum. The forum is not a debate. Thus, the RNC is giving a thumbs up for candidates to participate. Thanks to the RNC for facilitating a win-win for the process, he said. The Family Leader, a Christian conservative organization, is hosting the event with presidential candidates sitting around a table to engage in conversation with Vanderplatz. The RNC Council's office had initially disagreed with Vanderplatz, saying what he's called a forum is actually an unsanctioned debate. The RNC had advised candidates that attending the family leader event would violate a pledge they had made to not participate in any debate that isn't RNC-sanctioned. The RNC had said any candidate who participates would be, quote, disqualified from taking part in any future RNC-sanctioned presidential primary debates, unquote. Ultimately, Vanderplatz tweeted November 11th that he and the RNC reached an agreement and candidates would not be punished for attending. He said, uh, the RNC has relented in its resistance to our forum's format. Oh, this is from Drew Zahn, who is communication director for the Family Leader. He said, therefore, the forum will go on as planned, with all candidates on stage at the same time. Candidates confirmed include Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, with former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley expected to confirm soon. Zahn said, we do not expect Donald Trump will accept the invitation. DeSantis told reporters at campaign stops in Ames and Muscatine over the weekend that the RNC shouldn't be making threats. 
There's no way that that should cause the RNC to penalize any candidate, DeSantis said in Ames on November 10th. He said he told Vanderplatz, I don't know what you guys are going to work it out, how you guys are going to work it out, but I'll be here no matter what happens. In Muscatine on November 11th, DeSantis accused the RNC of doing Trump's bidding. Bob Vanderplatz is something, someone that has been very outspoken that Donald Trump's not the way forward for the party. And because of that, I think there's been pressure from Trump's camp on the RNC to try to do something to stop him, DeSantis said. But if I have an opportunity to speak to Iowans about issues that matter to them, I'm going to show up, and we should encourage that. And for the RNC to be doing the bidding of somebody who not only didn't show up to the last debate, but counter-programmed a rally— I know it wasn't that successful of a rally, but I mean, he did that. They need to just stand down on this, said DeSantis, taking a jab at Trump. Trump leads DeSantis and every other GOP presidential candidate in the polls by a wide margin. But DeSantis got an endorsement from Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds ahead of the November 8th Republican debate in Miami. Reynolds, who had been a Trump ally when he held the White House, told the Des Moines Register that she appreciates the former president's accomplishments, but believes it's time to move on. I don't think he can win, she said. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. We'll now switch to the Metro and Iowa section of the Des Moines Register. And the uh, top story here is stuck in second, DeSantis decries polling. Far behind Trump, he questions the veracity of surveys. Philip Sitter of the Register writes this article in Dateline, Muscatine, Iowa. Republican presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis questioned the integrity of polls when asked by a caucus goer over Veterans Day weekend in Iowa how he plans to improve his standing and win. But people at the event in Muscatine on Saturday, including the person who asked the question, said they need to hear more from DeSantis before he gets their support. Spencer Brown of Muscatine told DeSantis at a meet-and-greet in the lobby of Kent Corporation in Muscatine that he's leaning towards supporting him but needed to see DeSantis' heart come across more. Brown said other people do too, giving his position in the polls. DeSantis and every other GOP presidential candidate are behind former President Donald Trump by a wide margin, and while support for former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley has risen, it's slipped for DeSantis. They are now tied for a distant second place among likely Republican caucus goers in the most recent Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll. The Iowa poll is widely considered to be the gold standard of polling and receives an A-plus from 538's pollster ratings. DeSantis told people in the crowd at Muscatine to be skeptical of polls. He said he's focused on winning the Iowa caucus by being a candidate who shows up and meets people, not juicing a poll. He said, some of this stuff is so fraudulent when you look at it, accusing media outlets of not wanting to release polls if the results are in his favor. They want Trump to be the candidate for um, their reasons. I've never seen the obsession with these polls before. It's like they report that it's actually functional news, and a lot of people pay for these things. He did not name any specific poll, but did describe poll results for his recent re-election to lead Florida that he said did not ultimately match his victory total. We've shown an ability to move, and I think in Florida, Florida is a microcosm of the country, DeSantis said. I think Florida, 
Texas, Georgia, Arizona. Those states will be great for us, and then we'll battle out those other states, but we're going to get the job done. Brown told the register after the event of DeSantis' response, I don't think he answered the question. Trump's very far ahead, so the polls are not that far off. He said DeSantis is so far behind, he needs to do something different. And his advice to DeSantis was to talk about his vision to return the country to a more constitutional republic. He comes across as a manager. I love that. He's very capable, but he's not showing his heart enough, and he's not uh, painting the vision you want to walk into, Brown said. Meanwhile, Steve Kohlenberger of Muscatine said he's a past Trump supporter who's currently undecided. Kohlenberger liked what DeSantis had to say Saturday, but given that it was Veterans Day, he wanted to hear more from DeSantis on the military and how he would make us the superpower that we once were, given what he said were shortage of ammunition and too much focus in the military on being politically correct. Kohlenberg said, let's stop worrying about all these little skirmishes and getting our military spread out. He added that he completely backs Israel, which is currently at war with the Hamas militant group in the Gaza Strip, but does not want to see any American troops sent to the war. DeSantis, once again in Muscatine, expressed his support for Israel and skepticism over USA to Ukraine and its defense against Russia. He criticized, quote, sending billions of dollars to pay pensions for Ukrainian bureaucrats in those salaries, unquote. DeSantis said, obviously, I think that Russia is hostile to the United States. I also think Russia is more of a threat to Europe than they are to us. But you hear some of these other Republicans acting like this is like freedom and democracy hangs in the balance. I mean, Ukraine, they've got rampant corruption. Just be honest about that. On DeSantis's chances for getting the Republican presidential nomination, Kallenberg said they're average. From people I talk to, conservatives, they're Republican supporters, of course. It's almost like it's either a Trump or no Trump. It's either Trump or nobody, he said. It doesn't even seem like they're actually taking the time to listen to the other people. Deanna? Okay, a break from politics. Ragbri. Ragbri 51 registration is to open on November 15th. This is from Philip Jones. Registration for the 51st edition of the Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride Across Iowa will open Wednesday with some price changes. Ragbri 51 will run from July 1st to the 27th, and the route will be announced January 27th. The new prices are $225 for early week-long rider registration, up from $200 for the 2023 50th anniversary ride, Day passes will be $45, unchanged from the 2023 ride. Early registration runs from uh, through February 29th. $250 for standard week-long rider registration, available March 1st to April 14th, up from $225. Day passes will be unchanged at for late week-long rider registration, which runs from April 15th to May 15th, up from $250. Day passes will be unchanged at $60 for that period, and that price will carry over to passes purchased during the ride, a $10 decrease from last year. There will be no no week-long rider registration during the Ragbri Bike Expo in the starting town, 
unlike for the 2023 ride. $50 for standard registration of week-long non-riders, up from $45. Like the other registrations, the passes for support drivers and others who want to tag along without all the pedaling going on sale uh, Wednesday. But there is no early registration discount for them. For the 2023 ride, non-rider early registration costs for late registration of week-long non-riders, up from $50. So what is RAGBRAI? (laughs) Started in 1973, RAGBRAI evolved from an idea by Des Moines Register Washington columnist Donald Call and copy editor and features writer John Karras to make a six-day trans-state ride and write about it. Now it's an annual seven-day event billed as the oldest, largest, and longest recreational bicycle touring event in the world and operated by a full-time professional staff. It runs from west to east, starting at the Missouri River or one of its tributaries and ending at the Mississippi River. The route changes each year so that cities throughout the state have a chance to serve as overnight hosts and pass, pass through towns. The annual route length averages 468 miles, according to RAGBRAI. An important distinction, RAGBRAI is a bicycle tour open to riders of all ages and ability levels. It's not a race. People can ride all seven days or just a few, and the increasingly popular electric bikes are permitted, though riders will have to make their own arrangements for recharging. So how was RAGBRAI started? Karras wrote a series of columns about cycling, sometimes with call, in the early 1970s that was popular with readers of the Register. The 1973 Karras and Call came up with the idea to ride their bikes across Iowa from Sioux City to Davenport. Their bosses at the Register agreed to pay their expenses if they rode about the ride along the way. Then-managing editor Ed Hines asked Karras to invite readers along. When he and Call arrived in Sioux City on August 26th of 1973, there were 250 people waiting to ride with them. Register writers, register readers across Iowa were enthralled with the columns and stories about the ride and characters like Clarence Pickard, a pith-helmeted 83-year-old retired farmer who rode the entire way on a used women's bicycle that he bought just before the ride. The ride was held a second time in 1974, the second annual Great Bicycle Ride Across Iowa, or SAGBRAI. It became RAGBRAI in 1975 and ultimately shifted to the final full week of July each year. Karras remained active with the ride until just before his 2021 death, and Call died in 2018. The 2023 50th anniversary ride registered a record 28,000 riders as it retraced much of the original route, including a segment from Ames to Des Moines that drew upwards of 60,000 cyclists. So how do I register for RAGBRAI? Riders can register online on the RAGBRAI website, ragbri.com, choose RAGBRAI LI registration under the head title, The Ride. What does registration cover? Generally, it covers the costs of putting together the route and holding the event, including route marking and traffic control by the Iowa State Patrol. 
Registered riders also can depend on ambulance and paramedic services in case of accidents, luggage hauling, and a ride on a support and gear van or SAG wagon if they choose not to complete a day's ride. In addition, they get free commemorative patches. When is the deadline to register? The final deadline for registration is May 15th for week-long riders, but single-day passes and non-rider wristbands will be available at RAGBRAI merchandise trailers during the ride. When does registration for vehicle passes open? In previous years, vehicle pass registration was sold with rider registration. This year, vehicle pass registration will open on March 15th after RAGBRAI organizers have a chance to meet with overnight town organizers. So who can register? In 2021, RAGBRAI ended its long-time registration lottery, which limited week-long passes to about 12,000 riders. Registration is still capped, but is now on a first-come, first-served basis. Organizers do not disclose the cap, but RAGBRAI workers with Iowa State Patrol and Iowa Department of Transportation to ensure, let's see, to ensure all roads on the route can handle the number of riders expected. So when will the route be announced? The starting town, six overnight towns, and the ending town will be announced January 27th at RAGBRAI's annual gala at Hy-Vee Hall at the Iowa Event Center. Information on ways to purchase tickets to the route announcement will be released later. The full route, including passing through towns, is typically announced in March. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. And also in the Metro and Iowa section, not quite as epic an event as uh, RAGBRAI, but nevertheless a longtime tradition here in central Iowa is traversing creeks and mud and some muddy good time at the Living History Farms race. Uh, above, there's a picture. Uh, there's two pictures on this uh, story. Uh, first is a person, looks like quarterback Spencer Smith. He's wearing a football jersey with the number 16 and carrying a football as he crosses the finish line. So I assume he carried a football the entire race of five miles through a rural Iowa landscape featuring creek crossings, cows, and muddy fills at Living History Farms in Urbandale. And then another picture shows Ben Wicklund, who's navigating the trail as runners compete in Living History Farms race. I did run that race several years ago, and it's a pretty unique race as you run through creeks and mud and uh, all kinds of things. I, once was enough for me. I didn't do it again, but it was fun. I'm glad I did at least once. Moving on to other stories from the Metro and Iowa section, uh, Haley to launch a $10 million ad campaign. She's hoping to overtake DeSantis in a GOP primary. This is a story written by the Associated Press's Steve Peoples. Nikki Haley's presidential campaign will reserve $10 million in television, radio, and digital advertising across Iowa and New Hampshire beginning in the first week of December, a massive investment designed to give the former U.N. ambassador an advantage over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at a critical moment in the GOP nominating fight. Details of the advertising plans, which represent the Haley campaign's first official advertising reservation, were obtained by the Associated Press ahead of a public announcement. Haley's planned investment, as of now, is more than five times larger than DeSantis's current advertising reserves for the same time period, according to the media tracking firm Ad Impact. Haley's move comes as she fights to emerge as the clear alternative to former President Donald Trump to represent the GOP against President Joe Biden next fall. 
DeSantis stands as Haley's strongest competition for her party's second-place slot, although the Florida governor's campaign has shown signs of financial strain following a tumultuous summer. Trump remains the overwhelming front-runner in the GOP primary. Rival campaigns are betting that if they can emerge as the main alternative to Trump, that they can consolidate enough support to mount a strong challenge against him or replace him if he falters. Trump faces four criminal indictments, including a case focusing on his efforts to overturn his 2020 general election defeat in Georgia, and another on felony charges for working to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the run-up to the violent January 6, 2021 riot by his supporters at the U.S. Capitol. In U.S. politics, fundraising and advertising strategy can often be more consequential than a candidate's policies or personality. But money raised and spent by campaigns only tell part of the story in the 2024 election. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, whose allied support PAC had booked $7.5 million in ads through Iowa's January 15 caucuses, dropped out of the race late, Saturday, uh, late Sunday. Scott had struggled to register in polls nationally, and October polls found him trailing far behind Trump and Haley, his fellow South Carolinian. Haley will run her advertising through Iowa's January 15th caucuses in New Hampshire's primary to follow. As of now, the DeSantis campaign is spending only in Iowa. Haley's campaign declined to say whether the attacks whether the ads would attack DeSantis or Trump directly, but campaign manager Betty Ankeny called out DeSantis's campaign, which after winning the endorsement of Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, argued that Haley and others in the GOP field could only be spoilers. Ankeny said, Nikki Haley's momentum and path to victory are clear. The same can't be said for Ron DeSantis, who, even with a decent showing in Iowa, can't afford a cup of coffee at the Red Arrow Diner in New Hampshire and is a mere tourist in South Carolina. DeSantis's campaign reported just $5 million available to spend in the primary at the end of September, although spokesman Andrew Romeo said DeSantis raised millions more last month, including $1 million since last week's GOP presidential debate. Romeo said Monday in response to Haley's advertising plans, as Americans look behind the curtain, they will see Haley does not have the extensive record of conservative achievements that Ron DeSantis boasts. It's clear there is no way Nikki Haley can beat Donald Trump, and every dollar spent on her candidacy is an in-kind to the Trump campaign. We are confident the Iowa voters will see who will best represent them and their values. The DeSantis campaign, which has gone through two rounds of layoffs already, continues to look to an allied super PAC to help build out campaign infrastructure and supplement advertising spending. Haley's campaign has also leaned on allied support super PAC to keep pace with DeSantis' allies in recent months. The rival super PACs have largely kept pace with each other. As of Sunday, Haley's super PAC had reserved nearly $4.9 million in advertising from Monday through January compared to almost $4 million reserved by DeSantis' super PAC, according to Ad Impact. DeSantis' opponents flagged another shift in spending as a potential sign of financial stress. 
The pro-DeSantis, never backed down, moved late last week to shift roughly $700,000 in advertising initially set to run this month into January instead. The move leaves DeSantis with no advertising in New Hampshire whatsoever over the next two weeks. Kristen Davison, who leads Never Back Down, said no advertising dollars were cut. Instead, she said they were optimized and placed to complement the campaign and get January started. Future advertising reserves don't require payment until just before the ads run, while the bill for this month's ads were about to come due. In short, the maneuver could have been a way to save money in the short term, although Davison described the decision as standard operating procedure. Davison expressed optimism about the direction of the Santos campaign, pointing to Reynolds' endorsement last week, which not only is a huge endorsement and validated for Governor DeSantis, but also a real setback for Nikki Haley. Davison said, I think it effectively kills her in Iowa not to have the governor's support. As DeSantis and Haley intensify the rivalry, Trump continues to dominate in polling and fundraising. In his most recent federal filing, Trump's campaign committee reported more than $37.5 million cash on hand at the end of September, which was more than DeSantis and Haley combined. Haley acknowledged Trump's political strength on Sunday, but she also outlined her path forward. She said, we have plenty of money that we're going to be on TV with. She said this on Fox News Sunday. We're going to be strong in New Hampshire. We're going to be strong in South Carolina because we spent our money well. We've got great ground games in every one of those states. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. Okay, I'm going to move over to the main section, nation and world section. Heat records grow as the planet roasts. After extremely hot year, groups urge action now. This is from Dinah Voyle's Pulver of USA Today. Global average temperatures reached new highs over the past 10 to 12 months, breaking records in the steady march of a warming climate, two national groups say. It's been warmer than at any time in recorded history, and was like warmer, likely warmer than any other time in 125,000 years, an analysis by Climate Control concluded. The Copernicus Climate Change Group said it's virtually certain that 2023 will be the hottest year in recorded history. If these and other announcements detailed below sound familiar, it's because heat-related records are repeatedly being broken around the world. Andrew Pershing, who is Vice President for Science at Climate Control Central, which is a nonprofit that reports climate change news, said, We should expect to set records because we live on a warming planet. We have too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Heat and cold records have been set since people started keeping track of temperatures. But today, warm records occur far more often than cold records, and in a dizzying variety. Individually, they're not always attention-grabbing, but considering, but considered en masse, they present a look at how steadily rising temperatures affect how we live, work, and play. All the warming is in line with earlier predictions, says Michael Mann, author of the new book Our Fragile Moment, and professor of Earth and Environmental Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He said, some of the impacts, however, such as extreme weather events, are exceeding the predictions. The global average 
temperature for November 2022 to October 2023 was 1.32 degrees Celsius, above a pre-industrial baseline, Climate Central reported last week, using a method that it calls Climate Shift Index to calculate the days of above-average temperatures that can be linked to climate change. Here's what Climate Central says its findings mean for people. Over the 12 months, 7.3 billion people, 90% of the world's population, experienced at least 10 days of temperatures strongly affected by climate change. And 5.8 billion people were exposed to more than 30 days of temperatures made more likely by climate change. And an estimated 1.9 billion people experienced at least one five-day heat wave over the 12 months. Copernicus, a weather and climate service for the European Union, said October was the warmest October on record. The global temperature was the second highest of all months behind September of 2023. Year-to-date, the global mean temperature is the highest on record, 1.43 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial measure. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said Florida, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas are having their warmest year on record. Six other states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, and Rhode Island, have seen their second warmest year to date. The nation has endured a record $25 billion in weather-related disasters in 2023. Other climate milestones... October 16th, September was the fourth month in a row of record warm global temperatures, said Sarah Kapnick, who is NOAA's chief scientist. The global surface temperature of 61.9 degrees was more than 2.5 degrees above the 20th century average for September. NOAA supported it was the highest monthly global temperature anomaly of any month on record, and the 535th consecutive month with temperatures above the 20th century average. September 14th, NASA and NOAA announced Earth's sweltered under its hottest summer on record. September 6th, WMO and the Copernicus Climate Change Service announced Earth saw its hottest June to August on record, and August was the second hottest month ever following July of 2023. July 24th, water temperatures at a buoy, B-U-O-Y, in a closed-in bay south of Miami reached 101.1 degrees after the city's heat index had topped 100 degrees for 43 consecutive days. July 3rd to the 6th, Earth sets a new global daily heat record four days in a row, reaching a new high of 63 degrees on July 6th. In January, NOAA reports $18 billion disasters in 2022. It's the third highest behind 2020 and 2021 since the agency started tracking the number. It was the third warmest year in the 128-year record and ocean heat reached a new record high. So is it too late to do something? No, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Record-breaking events will continue until carbon emissions are reduced to zero, said Mann and scientists with Climate, Climate Central. 
but the extreme weather events should stop getting worse once the surface warming stops. Frederick Otto, a co-lead of World Weather, uh, World weather Attribution, which is a group of scientists studying the footprint of climate change and world weather events, said, the really good news is if we stop burning fossil fuels, temperatures will stop rising. He went on, and that has also immediate consequences for a lot of extreme weather events. But of course, as long as we keep burning fossil fuels, they will keep rising, and extreme events are going to get worse. Man said there is both, emergent, there is both urgency and agency. It is not too late to prevent truly catastrophic climate impacts. It's only going to get harder from here, said Pershing. Pat, back to you. Thank you, Deanna. And our final article from the front, our main section of Des Moines Register, Senator Tim Scott halts his presidential campaign. Senator says, I'm going to look forward to another opportunity. Mariana Petkowski of the USA Today wrote this article. Senator Tim Scott, a Republican from South Carolina, announced Sunday that he is suspending his 2024 presidential campaign less than a week after the third GOP primary debate. Scott made the announcement to Fox News' Trey Gowdy, a fellow South Carolinian who also served in Congress. Scott said, I love America more today than I did on May 22nd, but when I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential candidate. I am suspending my campaign. The lawmaker did not immediately endorse another Republican in the 2024 presidential race, and he denied that his campaign was an effort to become vice president. Scott said, I think the voters, who are the most remarkable people on the planet, have been really clear that they're telling me, not now, Tim. And so I'm going to respect the voters. I'm going to hold on and keep working really hard and look forward to another opportunity. Scott's campaign did not immediately respond to a request for additional information. The three-term senator launched his 2024 presidential bid in May, seeking to offer a more optimistic, Reagan-esque vision for the country, a distinctive stance in the Republican primary field. He also had a substantial $22 million squirreled away. Scott, the only black Republican senator, kicked off his campaign at Charleston Southern University, his alma mater. He said, our party and our nation are standing at a time for choosing victimhood or victory. Scott said, telling the crowd, I choose freedom and hope and opportunity. We need a president who persuades not just our friends and our base. But Scott's campaign struggled to pick up steam. He faded into the background in debates and he lost support in polls as the months wore on. In a real clear politics average of polls on the GOP field, Scott garnered 2.5% compared to former President Donald Trump's 58.5%. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley have been vying for second place. In late October, Scott said he was adding staff and campaign stops in Iowa aiming to win there. Tim Scott is all in on Iowa, his campaign manager Jennifer DeCasper said in a statement. As a candidate with the highest net favorables, Tim Scott is best positioned to compete on caucus day. Scott acknowledged his subpar standing in the first two Republican presidential debates and joked to an Iowa audience that he prepared for the third by watching WWE wrestling to figure out how to get into the game. Indeed, he seized more time last week than he did in the first two debates, but still did not have a breakout moment.
He had a good night, GOP strategist Rob Stutzman said, but so did the other candidates ahead of him. Scott's faith has been a cornerstone of his political career. On Sunday, he referenced a Bible passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, saying, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Deanna? Thank you, Pat. All right, a couple of brief articles on page three of the Metro section. Two elderly residents are killed in a crash near the fairgrounds. Noel Alvitz Granze reports, a two-vehicle crash involving a Camaro near the Iowa State Fairgrounds killed two elderly residents Sunday. First responders were called to East 27th Street and East University Avenue around 8 p.m. to multiple reports of a crash, according to a Des Moines Police Department news release. Fred Earl Lehman, age 76, and his wife, 79-year-old Mary Louise Lehman, were in the same car and died at the scene. Police believe a 1999 Buick Century, which the two elderly residents were in, was turning north onto East 27th Street from East University when it was struck in the passenger side by a 2011 Camaro, according to a preliminary investigation. The Camaro, driven by an 18-year-old, was traveling west on University Avenue at the time of the collision. The Buick hit a utility pole before flipping, according to the news release. Witnesses and evidence point to the Camaro traveling at a high rate of speed, said police. These are the 15th and 16th traffic-related fatalities in Des Moines this year. Des Moines police continue to investigate the crash. And then in Illinois, Illinois man dies while waterfowl hunting in Guthrie County. This is from Noel Alvitz Grance. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources said a man died Saturday while waterfowl hunting in Iowa. Seth Egelhoff, age 26, from Chesterfield, Illinois, was hunting at the Bays Branch Wildlife Area in Guthrie County, according to a news release. The Sheriff's Department got a call around 1 p.m., about a hunter with a gunshot wound to the face. Egelhoff was transported to a hospital by helicopter, but he was pronounced dead right after leaving the scene. The incident is under investigation, but the wildlife area is still open to the public. Pat. Thank you, Deanna. We'll take a look at a couple of short articles from the money section. Uh, the first one is the Internal Revenue Service announces changes in the tax brackets and deductions. The IRS has announced that income tax brackets and standard deductions will be changing come the 2024-2025 season. The IRS released the information Thursday revealing a 5.4% bump in income thresholds to reach each new bracket. There are seven federal income tax rates currently set at 10%, 12%, 22%, 24%, 32%, 35%, and 37%. For 2024, the lowest rate of 10% will apply to individuals with taxable income up to $11,600 and joint filers up to $23,200. The top rate of 37% will apply to individuals making above $609,350 and married couples filing jointly earning $731,200 or more.